Mama, Daddy, or Honey, or Sweetheart, or however you're called. How do you like that, men and women? Being a mother or a father, how does that make you feel? Is it what you expected when you, were, when you got married? What a privilege for you to be a mother or a father. That's a privilege, a tremendous privilege, a responsibility that God has entrusted to you as parents to direct your children pretty much any way you want. You can make them angry, or you can make them kind. Now, I say that very carefully, because there are parents that have done their very, very best. And we all, we as parents, we know, we, we make mistakes, don't we? We make some big mistakes, and our children could probably be offended and, and, and turn away from, maybe turn away from God because of our mistakes. And we have to live with, uh, with forgiveness and be forgiven in order to make it. But largely, we are responsible for the direction of our children. As, young, as, they, as they grow up young, we can, we can show them, model to them a way to go in life. And God has given us that privilege and also that responsibility. That's a responsibility. I would like to this morning, by the grace of God, through the Scripture... Give us or show us some ways that God's blessing can rest upon our families. And I'd like to use Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. If you'd like to turn there. Psalm 127 and 128. Psalm 127. I'd like to read both of these uh, passages. So if you follow along there, Psalm 127 and 128. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, Children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, 
Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. First and foremost, I believe in our families, in order to have successful families, we need the Lord's help. Except the Lord build the house, you might as well quit. I can't stress that enough. We need help. And why not get the help of the designer? God knows. God, and you know this, but God knows how families should work. And the best way, the highest level of fulfillment that a family can have. Why not employ his help? It doesn't matter how very careful you are, how hard you try. How exact you try to do everything. If the Lord's not in it, it may as well not be done. The Bible talks about a watchman. There's a watchman who walks around the city wall. He's watching for anything out there. He's watching for the enemy or anything that could come that would cause a problem in the city. He said, if the Lord's not with him, if the Lord's not watching the city, it doesn't even matter. It can be broken into. You know, and we as parents often do that. We're, we're, we're to be watchmen, aren't we, of our home. We watch, we look, we, we try to help our children make decisions that will, that will be for their benefit, that won't hurt them. Or we don't let them go places they shouldn't go that will hurt them. Again, if the Lord's not in it, it's going to fail. Now, does that mean that we should just sit back and say, okay, I can't really do anything. I just let the Lord do it. Lord, you got to watch out. No, I don't think so. I think we need to do our best in trying to, to guard our family from, from uh, failing or falling into a problem. But we need to employ the Lord's help. Unless He helps us, we're going to fail. We cannot afford the time and sacrifice it takes to raise a family, to do so without the Lord, because if so, it's in vain. I remember, uh, you, re you recall that Job, but talks, what it talks about Job in the, in the Old Testament, you know what he did for his family? Every morning, he would get up and he would, he would, do a, he would have a sacrifice for his children. For what reason? You remember? in case they had sinned. That's an interesting thing. In case they had sinned, he would, he would, uh, he would uh, and we could have a big discussion about that. We're not going to go there this morning. We need the Lord's help. You know, sometimes we like to compare and we say, oh, you know, those children, well, I'm, I'm glad my children don't do that, you know. Or, if that was my child, they sure wouldn't do that. You know, I think we have need that if anything good comes of your children, we have need to fall on our face before God and say, God, thank you for anything good that came. It was because of your help. Because the Bible says, except the Lord build the house, 
you're going to labor in vain. We need God's help. In verse 2, it talks about money again. You know, we can't do without money. I'm not against money. Maybe you think I am. I'm not against money. We need money. And it's kind of ironic that God has, probably in the, in the, in the most crucial time in our children's lives, we need the most money. We're the busiest. we got to make, there's all kinds of things and all kinds of demands that are on us that we, we need money to, to survive. I don't know why God did that. But it's in that crucial time. That's usually when we're the busiest. And especially when you have a large family. It takes a lot of money to keep everyone in food and clothes and shelter and all the extras. We get up early and off to work and we get home and we have a little side job so we can make ends meet. And we're up late trying to prepare for the next morning to make money and we get up early. And if we can't get a, can't, we try to see if we can't get a jump start on making enough money. You know, God can take the little bit that you make and make it go a long way. And He can make a big amount that you make and make it go not very far. He, he can do things like that. And I, be, I think it, it behooves us. You know, sometimes we stay up. It talks about it talks about doing all these things. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Get your sleep. Get your sleep. Don't be up worrying about where, where we're going to be, where it's going to be enough, or, or how we can make more money. God is watching over you. God gave you this little, or, the, or this big amount, and it behooves us to, to call on him and, and give him the, the little that you make or the lot that you give that you make and say, God, you make this reach around for my family. You make it a blessing to my family and to the community. You know, I believe that work becomes vain when it goes beyond the reasonable limits of time. When our work totally consumes us and we don't have time for the other very important responsibilities that we have. Too much work is counterproductive. Now I know that there are times when you have to do a lot of work. Early morning till late at night, that's, it has to be done. But when that's, the, when that's the norm rather than the exception, that can become a problem. It's vain for you to sit, rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. What's the bread of sorrows? Well, I don't know if I know for sure what that is, but I think I think sometimes that could be the work that we think we need to do, the money we think we need to have instead of time with spending time with our families and our communities. We end up eating the bread of sorrows. It makes bread, but in the end there's sorrow with it. The bread of sorrows. Get your sleep. That doesn't mean that we need to be lazy to sit back and say, Lord, I'm just waiting to see how you're going to feed these mouths. No. But if you're diligent in your work and a reasonable time to do it with the blessing of the Lord, I believe you'll have enough. 
you'll have enough. And I'm preaching this to myself. The implications here in this scripture could even be that God blesses us even during our sleep. Does God give during the sleep? It depends what business you have, right? <laughs> but no, God even gives. So when you lay your head, isn't sleep an amazing thing? You can be all stressed, all worried. You don't know what end is up, and you're so... But you go and lay down, and you close your eyes. And just for eight hours. And the next morning you wake up, you're refreshed, you have new vision, you've got new courage, you've got new energy. God gave you during your sleep. He gives during sleep. Get your sleep. Now, I say that as much to me as to anyone. I am a night owl and an early bird. You ever hear those? For years. No, I won't even tell you that. Never mind. You remember how Jesus was sleeping in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Right through the storm, he was back there sleeping. The disciples, they were all worried. They were, they were, they were afraid the water was coming in. They went, Jesus, Jesus, what are we going to do? You know, Jesus could sleep because he knew he was in the Father's care. I remember it was a while back when my daughter was younger. I came home. I was gone for several days, and I came home, and she said, she told my wife, she said, I can sleep better when Daddy's home. Mamas and daddies, we can sleep better when we know we're in our heavenly daddy's care. We live with purpose when we can rest in the arms of Jesus. It talks about arrows here. What are arrows used for? Huh? To kill, okay. In the, in, in longer ago, they were used for what? To kill? To kill what? Game for food, right? Or for enemies, people even. Yeah, that's right. So one of the purposes of the family is for shaping arrows. And part of that shaping is learning or teaching how to work. What a tremendous opportunity we have as moms and dads and as children to shape arrows. You know, children help, children help us shape arrows too, you know that? Our own children. I, I, you know, that you get home and you're around the supper table and, and little Johnny, he says, you know Sally at school today? She was so disrespectful to the teacher. Oh, she was. No, no, I was. And right there, we're starting to shape this arrow, you know. We're, we're, we're shaving off some things. And then when Johnny gets older and he's in the youth group and, and Sally said, you know, Johnny, he, he, he was... He was so immature, silly. In the youth group today, today he was he was messing around, and they help shape those arrows. We're taking knots off that are that that arrow would wobble, and we help children. Our children help us shape arrows. We're shaping arrows for life, for service, for kindness, for gentleness, for patience, 
for a good attitude, to take advice, to be able to love. We're shaping arrows for, so they can be able to take correction, discipline. So they live for the good of others. We, we shape arrows so they can take blame. We shape arrows that they'll do stuff that they don't feel like doing. Mom and Dad, do you always feel like doing what you have to do? No. No. You don't feel like getting up and making breakfast. Right? You don't feel like going to work. You know what? I don't know if you preachers are the same <laughs> as I am, but do you always feel like preaching? Sometimes we don't. We have to do things that we don't always feel like doing. And our children have to be taught that. You've probably all read stories, Indian stories, when they would go out on these hunts, these buffalo hunts. You know, they'd hang off the side of their horses and they'd shoot these bows. I always thought that would be pretty neat if I could have a horse and I could learn to ride the horse, hang off the side and shoot something. Well, they did it. They needed uh, uh, to bring home food for their families in the villages. This may be a selfish reason to shape arrows, but I believe children as arrows can also help to bring in enough money for the family, for food. As they grow up, they help bring in enough money for food and for maybe... um, a trip that you wanted to take together or to meet some goal that you have together. Children can, can help fulfill that. Now in the Old Testament, there were a lot of battles fought by hand-to-hand combat. You had to be really close to get your opponent. But when they started using bows and arrows, a man could be very effective in, this, in destroying the enemy without being right next to him. He could be far away, and he could destroy the enemy with a long shot. Our children are like arrows. An arrow that is shaped correctly can be effective against the enemy in different parts of the world that you as a mother and father can't be. When they work against the enemy in any location in the world, That is a direct blow to the enemy from your bow. From your bow as moms and dads. When your children are working over here in the grocery store and they're they're working over here in in the pantry and, and maybe they're in Belize, Central America, and wherever they are, if they're working, if they're formed correctly, that's a a shot from your bow against the enemy. Are you a mighty man that can send arrows straight for the long distance? Correctly shaped arrows are a death blow to the enemy. Don't you think that's why the enemy is determined to undermine the family? He does not like families. In fact, there's a, there's a man called uh, Crawley. Crawley. Ale- is it Alexander Crawley? He was a wicked man. He's dead. But he was a very wicked man. He was a sodomite. 
He sacrificed children. He was horrible. But he said the enemy, number one, is the family. The enemy, number one, is the family. I believe Satan has his eye on the family. He'd like to destroy it because he knows the power of family. So how do we get arrows to fly straight? How do we shape and take off the knots and kinks that cause an arrow to miss the mark? Well, I believe God has given us some instruction in His Word about how we can shape these arrows. How we can smooth out the knots that will keep the arrows from flying straight. And one of those, one of those areas, ways is through discipline. Now, there are different ways to discipline. But I believe we are losing one of the most effective ways of disciplining that the Bible speaks about. The Bible speaks about the use of the rod. Now, in our day, that's not very popular. That's not a very popular thing. And I know in in certain situations we can't. So why did God make such naughty children, such naughty arrows? Children are a gift. Children are a gift from God. And I believe God meant children for our good. I really believe that. He meant it to make us better people. Sometimes it's to take the pride from our life. And to help us take the selfishness out of our life. It's to help us better work with different personalities. You know, the more children you have, the more personalities there are to work with. It it prepares you for life. Proverbs 13, I'd like to look at Proverbs here. There are several scriptures out of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him, chasteneth him betimes. You love your children? Not if you don't discipline them. The Bible says you don't. If you spare the rod, you don't love your child. Someone would like to say, oh, I can't do that. That is abuse. I'd like to say on the authority of God's word, that is not abuse. That's not abuse. Yes, if you just pick up a stick and you start to hit and swat, yeah, that's abuse. Or if you pick up a board with a nail in it and start to beat him with that, I've heard of it. That's abuse. But when in a controlled, consistent, loving, administered spanking, you know what it does for your youngster? You know what it does for a child? That clears the conscience. It clears the conscience of a young child. Proverbs 19, verse 8 says, 
He that getteth wisdom. 19 verse 18. Sorry about that. 19 verse 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. You know, I think there's a window of time where this kind of discipline should take place. It's not all the whole length of time. But there's a window of time where this kind of discipline should take place. And, and, and there comes a time when it's too late to use the rod. And I'm not sure exactly where that is. That's a good discussion to have sometime. Where is the time when, there's, when the rod should not be used anymore? Maybe it's at the age of accountability. Maybe it's way before that. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. God has given you the responsibility to help clear the child's foolishness, his conscience. Proverbs 23 13 and 14. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. It's serious business, folks. It's serious business. You'll deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 29, 15 through 17 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. When the wicked are multiplied, transgression is increased, but the righteous shall see their fall. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. You want shame? Just let your child do whatever it wants. You'll get shame. But if you want... uh, a child that will be honorable, correct them. Proverbs 22, verse 6, yet. Proverbs 22, verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, it seems to say there that if you train your child right, they'll never go astray. Is that what that's saying? I don't think so, actually. Children have, the, have the, their, the, an opportunity to make their own choices. And not all children would decide to go right. But I believe if you train your child properly, there's no way that they can ever get away from that teaching. Whether they turn away from God and they go to China, they can't get away from that teaching. It's always there. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. He can't get away. He can run. He can try to get away from it, but it's going to be there. It'll always be there. And that puts a big responsibility on us as parents to train our children in a right way so that when he's old, it'll be there. Another way to help make our arrows straight, I believe, is by employing the help of our brothers and sisters. You know, 
I don't have it in me. I don't have all the answers for my children in me. Sometimes we don't like when people uh, help us out at all. We really need help from other people to help shape the errors. There were many people in my life that helped shape my life. Where, and one time, one time I asked my dad, I said, Dad, do you, do you care? I mean, I, I, I kind of talk, I'm asking other people about some things. And Do you care if I talk to other people about needs in my life? And he said, no, that's no problem. He said, if it's good people you're talking to. <laughs> so it really depends on who it is that they're getting advice from. And so I think it's very important for us to surround our families with good people. Because you need help raising your children in your community. And we need good people to help raise our children. Now, I would suppose that there are some children here that would rather not be seen in town with all their brothers and sisters and mom and dad. You know, that you go out to town and you get out of the van and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Hey, oh, the poor mother. I would say, oh, the blessed mother. The blessed family. You know, there was a family that I heard of one time went to town. They had, I don't know if they had five children, but they had one of these vans. They have a door here and a door here. So <laughs> they got out of the van. You know, people are watching. They get out of the van. They went, shoom, shoom, three, four, five. And they'd go around the van. They went in the other door, and they kept on coming out, kept on coming out. <laughs> Just to see what people would say. You know, sometimes we buy into the world's view that it would be better to have fewer children. You know, that's a worldly philosophy. That's a worldly philosophy. The Bible says that blessedness and happiness comes when a man has a quiver full of arrows. Now, I realize that there are different sized quivers, right? (laughs) But whatever size quiver the Lord has given you, that's a blessing. Children are a blessing. They're meant to be a blessing. I don't know if you've ever heard, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard an older person say, you know, I really wish I wouldn't have had so many children. <laughs> Did you ever hear a person say, an older person say that? I, I haven't. Children are meant to be a blessing. Those that have no children struggle with that fact. Those that have few children, they're soon gone from home, and home is left empty and quiet. Those that have a lot of children, yes, that means a large number of struggles, but when shaped properly, they're a whole package of love and a whole lot of joys. Now, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not, get me get me right, I'm not looking down on small families or uh, Sometimes that's just the way, that's what the Lord has provided. That's how it is. But have you ever observed who is the, who are the happier families a lot of times? Is it the small families or the big families? A lot of times it's the big families. You'd think that should be a a bunch of trouble. But you know what? Those those people have learned to sacrifice. They get, they don't get all the new stuff. They got to get hand-me-downs. They got to learn to sacrifice. and, and, And they learn to adjust to all kinds of different personalities like we talked about before. I believe those people 
probably are more prepared for life than the smaller families are. And I'm, if you have a small family, God bless you. I don't have a, just a large family. We have six children. But uh, I came up from a family of eight. My mother came from a family of 12. She has sisters that have had, she has, she has nieces that have, uh, my wife has nieces that have, uh, is it 18 <laughs> children? sound like I'm an advocate to large families. Really, there's no merit necessarily in having a large family. Just that, they, that you have more joys when the arrows are flying straight. You know, I think we're, sometimes we're affected by worldly thinking that we wait to have our children until, we have, until we're more established in our ministry or until our ministry is not distracting us. I would like to suggest that children can actually enhance your ministry, whatever you're doing. Children have a way of getting into our hearts where adults cannot. You know, we go shopping at the store when we had little children, and, and some of the cashiers would say, oh, those braids. I used to have braids like that. Our, my little daughter, she sucked her fingers upside down, two in, two in sucking her fingers like that. And one of the ladies at the cashier, I used to do that just like that. And there's conversations started that wouldn't otherwise be started because of your children. Psalm 28 says that you will be blessed if you fear the Lord. Not only with your mouth, but when you talk and your walk are in his ways, then you shall be blessed. When your talk and your walk line up. You know, we talked about being so concerned about making ends meet that we don't have time to sleep. Here in, in chapter 28 and chapter 128 in Psalm, it seems to indicate that there will be enough and that you'll have something to do. You don't have to beg. God will provide. And it also insinuates that we need to, be, to stay busy. We can't just sit back and say, God, you take care of me. The promise here is that your labor will be rewarded. You know, some men never take the time to enjoy their labor. Take the time to enjoy your labor. The greediness to get takes away the ability to enjoy. And I also believe he is referring here to the labor and toil that you put into your family. The sacrifice, the interrupted nights, the time it takes to play a game with your, with your children, the time it takes to read a story to your children, the time it takes to, the inconvenience it is to take your children with you. All those things will pay off after a while. It's, it's, it's not always convenient at the time. But eventually, that will pay off. It will all come back to you and you'll enjoy the fruit of your labors. One of the blessings of a wife for a man was for the propagation of the human race, to provide help. 
And so to have children is one of the callings, if the Lord so allows, for the ladies. Fruitfulness is not a burden, but a blessing. Fruitfulness is not a burden, but a blessing. The, the, the woman is pictured here as being by the sides of the house, meaning inside and around the house. If you will seek purpose as a family, let mama be a homemaker. She's a homebody. She's a busy inside and outside the house, but mostly inside the walls to beautify the house with her presence. Her chief usefulness is in the inner side of the dwelling where she adorns the place with her presence. I don't know about your children, but I remember growing up. We'd come home from school. You know the first thing we did? Mom! Mom! Where's mom? We wanted to know that mom was at home. We wanted the security that mom was there. My children do it. They want to know where mom is. Try being some night without mom at home. That's not fun. What a blessing to have a faithful wife. You've probably heard the, 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 uh, the saying, behind every successful man is a good woman. You know, I believe that's biblical. The Proverbs 31 woman is busy taking care of her household. She cares for the poor and needy. She's here supporting and standing behind her husband. She is on call 24 hours a day. And in verse 23, it says, Her husband is known in the gates. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. When you are in your rightful place, Mama, you cause your husband to succeed, to shine. To flourish. I don't know if you've ever had anyone come up to you and say, you know, you look just like your mom. Or you act just like your mom. Or you, you, maybe you have had, had uh, someone tell you that your daughter or your son acts just like you. How does that make you feel? Does that kind of make you feel good? It should. It should. Thy children, it says, like olive plants, round about thy table. I understand that the olive tree reproduces by sending up shoots from its roots. If not trimmed, they surround the trunk. Like the psalmist says, the blessing of many children. Your children, like olive plants, round about your table. There's all kinds of little shoots that come up around the olive tree. And when that olive tree, anytime that olive tree is taken down, any one of those shoots can take its place. Your children are like little shoots of you. You know, someday, someday your children are going to be mamas and daddies. Someday they're going to take your place. And their life will have their stamp will have your stamp on their lives their life will be stamped with you what do you want that to, how do you want that to, to look 
It's important that we put things that we want them, how we want them to grow, how we want them to be. If you want your children to be able to take advice, if you want to be, them to be able to love, to be able to take correction, to be able to, or willing to live for the good of others, to take blame, to do things that they don't feel like doing, to share joy, then you have to exemplify it. You have to exemplify that. The Bible says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I've got a reading here I'd like to read. It says, my mind was stirred by a comment on someone else's post about needing a move of the Holy Spirit to get over what all they missed out on growing up Mennonite. I thought I would perhaps share a bit of my perspective on what all I was cheated out of. After traveling the U.S. and Canada extensively, seeing institutions of various sorts and churches from Amish to mega country and city, I offer this rant on the desperate inequities of growing up on a farm, a conservative Mennonite. I had to work. You have no idea the abuse I endured. Slaving away before the sun was up to do my chores before school. I never got to go hungry, not once. I never had the pleasure of being neglected. Instead, I had to wash behind my ears and brush my teeth. Oh, the horror of it all. How should I explain? I had to put away my own wash, fix my own bed, and clean my own room. I even had to wash the pink cat ring out of the bathtub. By the time I was 14, I ran the entire farm while my dad was away for weeks at a time. I was forced to be responsible. I had hundreds of head of livestock dependent on me at 15 negative degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't get to be lazy. I never got to run around on the streets unsupervised either. I never had the excitement of watching my parents divorce. I was cheated out of the drama of watching my mother bring in new guys to try out. I was never allowed the joy of watching my dad come home drunk, puking all over the couch and floor. I never felt the adrenaline of hiding behind the couch while dad beat mom up. I never got to see my sisters cut themselves or grow cra go crazy. I never got high or drunk. Here I sit, 45 years old, too old to party, never been drunk or high, never woke up naked wondering where, who, what, never slept with a random girl just for funsies. Never did a line, smoked a joint, or even a cigarette. Never got into a bloody knockdown, drag-out brawl. Never been to a bar to pick someone up. Never been picked up there. Never got my eardrums damaged by blasting devil music into my head. I never got to play heavy contact sports and never got my knees crushed not doing it. Now I don't get to feel the pain every day. Oh, how shall I bear this cheatedness? Is there any life for me at all? I mean, I don't even get to experience herpes or AIDS. I wasn't allowed to feast continually on junk, junk food. Instead, I was forced to eat yucky vegetables. Not only that, but I had to plant and hoe those vegetables too. And that was back when a hoe was an instrument used to chop weeds out of the garden. I had to drink raw milk, imagine. I never got to shoot anybody or join a gang. I wasn't allowed even to try exciting things like casting spells and worshiping Satan. I mean, not even once. 
Seems like just a little experimenting would have been okay. But no, not for me. I couldn't even enjoy a good demonic movie. No seances, no fortune tellers, no statues of Buddha, not even incense to burn. No, instead I was taught that the world is your enemy. I was forced to church every Sunday morning and evening and every Wednesday evening. We had devotions every day. And yes, I was forced to sit and listen. I had to learn about Daniel and David and Abraham, Esau, and all those other dead guys. The first word we learned to read, Sally, ran, no, it was God. Such horrible religious indoctrination. The narrow-minded controllers. Why not let me choose my own way of thinking? How am I supposed to be relevant in this world if my, no, if my nose grew up stuck in a 2,000-year-old book? And to top and to top it off. We had to memorize it, even in school. School? <laughs> oh boy. Now you talk about abuse. We got whipped if we cheated or lied. We were not allowed simple developmental joys like talking back to the teacher or cussing. Boys wore pants and girls wore dresses. I suppose some of them never recovered from the shame of it. We were jilted from the joys of immature school-age dating and infatuation flings. So never got to enjoy multiple broken heart flings or the following separation. The happiness of bully-run, rage-torn, out-of-control classrooms was also cheated right out of our grasp. And of course, it was only Christian music. No radio, no television. Videos were still years away. And I never was allowed to go to hear the Beatles or ACDC or any other concerts, ever. What did I do? Worked, mostly. Never got to be lazy. I never felt the euphoria of being beaten by my dad. I never was molested by a perverted neighbor man. I never heard my mother curse. I was cheated out of a house of screaming, angry fits. Just never got to experience it. How can I be normal? I never watched porn with my dad or found his sin hidden under the seat. I missed out on being called names or called good for nothing or useless debris. I walked up and down the road a lot. I cried a lot. I begged God to let me see him in new ways. I searched, I studied, I thought a lot. Sometimes I drove the tractor all night just for the feeling of worth it brought. And while I drove, I thought. But it was not until years later that I realized just how cheated I had been. Today, I work with folks from every walk of life. I have spent time with millionaires and homeless Men and women, some that are both. Amish, Catholic, Muslim, atheist, and heathen. I have heard story upon tale after journey upon ballad. And I walk away from places sometimes so absolutely appalled at the devastation I see played out in the havocish lives in front of me that I wrestle with harsh realities I never dreamed I would face. Broken homes, devastated children, homeless, hopeless souls, women with four children from three fathers, drug use, murder, angry parents, war zone schools, screaming youth, drunkenness, dads using daughters for sex, cutting, demon worship, tattoos, hate-filled music, evil movies, idols, seances, pregnant teens, abortions, witchcraft, herpes, disease, laziness, suicide, hatred, prison sentences, hunger, prostitution. But hey, at least they aren't being religious. At least they aren't all narrow-minded cheating their children out of life. At least they don't force religion on folks. This is the refrain I hear as I walk among those who identify with my background. 
We just want to get away from all this religion. We want to follow Jesus. No more of this piddly stuff our parents had. We're going to change things. And change they do. But I wonder, as I watch the heaps of teaching rotting in dumpsters, if folks have even the slightest idea of what just happened. I wonder if they realize, as they rush to change the awfulness of their upbringing, if they realize what else they chucked out with it. I wonder if they realize the price tag in God's economy that is attached to disposing carelessly of something valuable simply because it's not understood. By today's standards, my parents were mean. And by the grace of God, I would like to carry out some of that meanness onto my children. And I hope to see them carry it out on theirs. There are a whole lot of things out there I did not experience, and I do not want my children to either. Going to a prom half-dressed and throwing away the priceless gem of virginity are not necessarily experiences for normal, healthy development. This rant is not intended to belittle or hurt anyone who was genuinely wounded in childhood or youth, especially not someone who was abused sexually. Neither is it intended to portray me or Mennonites as superior. It is intended to point out that doing things God's way is always better. It is intended to be a call to this generation to stop and think before you arbitrarily trash things you do not understand. We have been given so much. Don't spend your life. Grab it and add to it as you reach into the lives of the devastated world around you. Let's kneel and pray.